There, I said to myself, are the reasons for the silence and the darkness that surround the library. It is the preserve of learning, but can maintain this learning unsullied only if it prevents its reaching anyone at all, even the monks themselves. Learning is not like a coin which remains physically whole even through the most infamous transactions. It is rather like a very handsome dress which is worn out through use and ostentation. Is not a book like that, in fact? Its pages crumble, its ink and gold turn dull if too many hands touch it. I saw Pacificus of Tivoli leafing through an ancient volume whose pages had become stuck together because of the humidity. He moistened his thumb and forefinger with his tongue to leaf through his book, and at every touch of his saliva those pages lost vigor. Opening them meant folding them, exposing them to the harsh action of air and dust, which would erode the subtle wrinkles of the parchment, and would produce mildew where the saliva had softened, but also weakened the corner of the page. As an excess of sweetness makes the warrior flaccid and inept, this excess of possessive and curious love would make the bulk vulnerable to the disease destined to kill it. This is the explosive story of the Karamazov family. The seed of depravity and sin that was in their father was the only thing the brothers had in common. Welcome back to The Readers Karamazov. We are your hosts, the Bastard Sons of Hegel. I'm Carl Bookmarks. I'm Friedrich Peachy. And I'm Soren Rearguard. Welcome back, friends. You're listening to episode two of season three, The Name of the Rose. Today we're talking about days three and four in Umberto Eco's The Name of the Rose. We'll get to that in just a minute. First, a little bit of housekeeping. You can follow us on social media. We are on Twitter at the Readers K. We are on Facebook, facebook.com slash the Readers Karamazov. And you can shoot us an email anytime at the Readers Karamazov at gmail.com. We love getting reader questions and talking about them on the show, so, so drop us a line. Um, you can uh, listen to the cast on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, or just about anywhere you get your podcast. So give us a listen, give us a rating, and uh, even a review if you want to do that. Every little bit helps. As I said, we're dealing with days three and four of this week-long expedition through the Abbey in the name of the Rose. I'm going to give, as always, a little plot summary here before we dive into content. And Carl reminded me, after last episode, he reminded me that we didn't necessarily lay out exactly who has died when so far? So I'm going to fold that into the summary. So if you're feeling a little confused, hopefully that'll catch you up. I'm going to split this summary into three sections. I'm going to talk about the investigation as it's ongoing into the murders. I'm going to talk about the Abbey life at large. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about Adso, our main character, our novice who's leading us through this world, because he has some things in particular happening to him this time around. To take this first, the investigation. So let me just lay out what we've had happen so far. Before the beginning of the book, we've had the death of Adelmo, one of the illuminators in the library, and he has fallen to his death out of a window 
in the library to, to the ground below. There's an uncertainty as to whether this was suicide or whether he was pushed. But his death lines up, this is kind of important conceptually for the book, that his death lines up with the first trumpet blast from the book of Revelation, which is about things falling to the earth, right, from the sky. And so that his death mimics that. Then the second death um, of the three we've had so far is Venantius, and he's a translator in the library. And he is found, he's not actually killed, we, we learned this today, but um, he's found in a, in a basically a vat of pig's blood. And that's, again, mimicking the second trumpet blast from the book of Revelation, where the waters are turned to blood. Um, and then the third is um, the death of Beringer, the assistant librarian. And he's someone who's at least rumored to have been pursuing romantically Adelmo, the, the first dead monk. He is uh, found drowned in the baths this time around. He has disappeared at the end of day two. They don't know where he is, So, but in the investigations uh, over the courses of day three and four, they eventually find him in, a, in the bath, and he's apparently been there for a day or so. Um, again, they're uncertain whether he died there or he was placed there after his death. So the, the, the deaths are mounting up in the abbey. The, the investigation is going pretty slowly for William of Baskerville and Adzo. They've been thwarted several times in their attempts to get back into the library. Uh, William has been waiting for the return of his glasses. They eventually discover the stolen glasses in the clothing of Beringer when he's found dead. Uh, but he's also had a new pair made for him by the glazier at the abbey. And so now he's got six eyes, as Adzo says, and he's ready to investigate. He, they managed to crack this hieroglyphic code that's been left for them by Venantius, the translator. And then they end up figuring out the trick to... Uh, the library of the abbey and how to navigate it and how things are laid out. They're laid out through kind of a, a, a coded system, and it's really a geographic layout, like a map of the world almost. Books from different regions are laid out in these clusters of rooms throughout the library. So they finally have figured out the, the pattern of the library, even if they haven't gotten really any closer to who's actually committing these murders. So that's the state of the investigation at the end of day four. Meanwhile, at the Abbey, other things are afoot. Remember, the original purpose of William of Baskerville coming to this Abbey was to act as part of a delegation in a meeting between, on the one side, his Franciscan order and the Holy Roman Emperor, and then on the other side, the representatives of Pope John. There's a big disagreement going on. There's sort of struggles for political power and religious power going on, centering as we talked a good bit about last time, around questions of poverty and what level of poverty is acceptable and that sort of thing. And so the, the, the legates on both sides arrive. William is reunited with his brother Franciscans, but pretty quickly after that, the legates from the Pope arrive as well. And so there's some swirling tension between those two sides. And in particular, there's a an old inquisitor on the side of the Pope that William knows and dislikes very strongly. So there's some tension there. And so everybody's getting ready for this sort of confrontation between these two sides. Meanwhile, the abbot himself is very concerned because he knows that if the murders aren't solved, then the legates from the Pope are going to demand that they be able to take over the rule of the abbey for a little bit of time until the mystery is solved. So he wants William to solve it as quickly as possible. That hasn't happened yet. We're still building towards our climax here. Um, finally, on, the, on a more personal note for Adzo, our young novice, um, in the midst of all of this, 
he has a sort of strange encounter that ends up being very important for him. He goes in, he's looking for food at night, basically. He goes into to the kitchen. He sees a mysterious figure there, and it turns out it's a, it's a young woman from the village down below. What's actually happened, as he learns later, is that Salvatore, who's the monk who used to be a friar, and he sort of chatters in a bunch of languages, is has been procuring women for Remigio, who's the cellarer of the abbey, and he, uh, Remigio will sleep with them in, in exchange for, basically, for food to feed their families. What happens the night that Adzo is there, however, is that he scares off Salvatore, and the woman is kind of beguiled by his youthful beauty, and they end up sort of making love on the floor of the kitchen. Adzo is immediately regretful about this. Um, he confesses to William. William gives him absolution. And they kind of talk about the nature of love and that sort of thing. But in Adzo's mind, at least, at least the old Adzo who's telling this story, he feels like this sort of base, lustful encounter that he's had in the kitchen has then been transformed into a genuine, some form of genuine love and concern for this woman. And so at the end of day four, he's very distraught when she has been caught sneaking into the abbey again by Salvatore, who's brought with him a black cat that he's going to use for some nefarious love spell he wants to put on her. And she is a kind of arrested, taken into custody by this inquisitor as a, as a witch. And it's presumed that she's going to be burned for this. And Adzo is very upset about this. And William says, well, forget it, Adzo. It's Abbey Town, right? All right, come on. Clear the area. On the sidewalk. On the sidewalk. Get off the street. Get off the street. And so... He's pretty upset at the end here. And so we have this confluence of sort of the investigatorial stuff and then the life of the Abbey stuff and then adds those sort of personal struggles with his vocation as a monk as well, all going on at once. So that's those are the basics of what are happening over days uh, three and four. I want to start with a question for you all um, that we maybe mentioned glancingly last time but didn't really dive into. This is a book that runs on the hours of the monastery, right? And so we, our, our days are, we're broken up by days, not chapters or sections, right? And the, the, the days themselves are broken up by the hours of prayer that are occurring throughout the day. So hours like prime and sext and non and um, all these different times when supposedly the monks are praying, but in fact, other things are going on as well. I'm wondering how you feel about the the rhythms of this book and what that layout, as opposed to a more traditional layout where we're maybe going hour by hour or something like that, what that does to the feel of the book, what that does to the possibilities of investigation, and just anything you notice about how that's working in the life of the book. I think one really interesting aspect of that is it's also, you know, the week and makes us think of like the Genesis week of creation and what is being destroyed in this week, you know, a reversal of that. There's a lot of unholy or antichrist-like behavior going on in this attempt to bring about a, a revelation. It's like the movie Seven, but it's not the Seven Deadly Sins, it's the Seven Trumpets of Revelation, right? Maybe there's like a Morgan Freeman Brad Pitt aspect to William and Adso, right? So it reminds me of that too. And in general, that kind of purposeful reversal of love or corruption of love, the worldly corruption of love. Um, and I think in these two days, there's a lot more to be said as well about how 
love is corrupting somebody or how people corrupt themselves out of their super abundances, perhaps even of love. I mean, I, I like a couple things about it. One is that it seems to be like this mirror of the a description that Echo has of the, of the library is this living thing, that there's these sort of cycles and breaths of the abbey. They're always returning to the to their prayers. They're always returning to their communal worship and, and going through the, the sort of rituals of the day as one body that's now being disturbed from these outside forces on a few different levels. But I, I also like it in the context of William's discussions with Adso about orders of the like the order of the universe and the order of the library and making sense out of order it's very ordered obviously and it provides them with like a baseline of this is what we do but the sort of um nefarious is a negative term so i don't mean to be to use a negative term the sort of like thing that's worming its way in to these discussions of order and making sense of the universe is the sort of chaotic way of thinking that is revealed to be like at play in William's mind that adds so surprised. William actually is not working from first principles. He's working from guesswork and thinking about every possibility. And only when he's thought of all the possibilities, he does he select the one that's most sound. And that tension between confusion, chaos, and order, I think is I don't know, nicely juxtaposed with the order of these prayers and, and worship services and then their interruption by the events going on. One thing that I noticed about the way that these days work is partly that they're very long days, that there's all this time that's being used throughout the day. And so you tend to think about, like, if you think of a typical crime novel, it's like, well, the bad things happen at night. And that seems to be Mm -hmm. true here to an extent as well. But the problem is just that, like, you know, like you knife somebody in an alley and at 2 a.m., you're not expecting anybody else to be around, and that's why you do it. But in the Abbey, you never know who's going to be around because there's all these legitimate reasons why people are out of bed doing things in the middle of the night, and then also some illegitimate reasons. And so it adds a level of confusion to what's going on mm-hmm. um, because, you know, the monks get up incredibly early to pray in the mornings, right? <laughs> and then they're, they're sort of like the days are more leisurely in some ways even though they're working hard there's time for rest throughout the day there's these meals that are happening throughout the day and i was struck by that on another level um there's a really wonderful moment in in this section where adzo observes william he's just like taking some chill time in his cell and he's like what do you he can't figure out what he's doing and then he realizes he's just thinking through problems he's like medit it's almost like he's meditating but he's not praying he's He's like mouthing words as he's trying to think through a particular problem. And so it strikes me that there's a, a nicely sort of contemplative m- mode to this mystery solving as there is in the, you know, the contemplative life of the monastery at large. Mm. It's, it's not rushed. It's not, okay, bing, bang, boom, we have to find these things, which is somewhat what the abbot's looking for because he wants immediate answers. But William is willing to sort of let his investigation, breathe, think through all those possibilities, generate those possibilities, as you're really rightly pointing out, Friedrich, and then letting them fall where they may. That's something that's enabled by this sort of contemplative mode of life of the Abbey. It's an investigation that's a little bit more relaxed, even though, of course, it's still urgent because people's lives are on the line. Um, but it has that that a sort of like a give and take. And, and I'm noticing it in the way that 
it, it really seems well suited to what Echo wants to do because I was noticing this time around, I gave a plot summary, but really there's not all that much plot that happens over these two days, even though it's like 150 pages in the book. There's a lot of discoursing about ideas, right? And this is sort of yeah. mm-hmm. even more so than in the first two days. You see here Echo working to combine his murder mystery with his novel of ideas. And so we have all these moments where people are just discoursing over different ideas. There's a wonderful part near the end where William and Adso are just having a conversation about do, do unicorns exist and what do they look like? What are they like if they do exist, right? And it's making a serious point about the bigger picture of the book, but in the moment it feels very tossed off or like, why in the world are you talking about unicorns in this moment of all these things, right? And so there's, there's a nice like sort of gentleness to the way, the, the rhythms of the book and how it's working that, that I find very appealing um, that maybe lets Echo combine those mystery elements a little bit more with the, the elements of an investigation of the ways of the universe. I like what you're saying because it in part also connects to a vision of uh, life that we all appreciated at the end of Candide, cultivating the garden and discussing philosophical questions. That's like a huge portion of this book is people discussing herbs and growing them, discussing the books they've been reading. I also appreciate that one of the ways they measure time because you're talking about how they, they get up so early is that a few brothers stay up reading the appropriate number of psalms that it would take uh, to measure out time before the next, uh, they have to be uh, woken up to go to their next prayers. And I, I just wanted to throw in that I appreciate those alternative measures of time uh, that they use in order to to get to the next thing. I once read a, um, I was reading a book about music and the person made the comment that the chanting of Psalm 51 is the perfect amount of time to steep a pot of tea. Uh, that's always stuck with me. That's a, that's a lovely method of doing. This things. is a British book. Yes, it was. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. Thank, thank you all. These are all great thoughts about um, the way that time is working, and also the the need that's felt certainly by Adso and the other monks, even if maybe less so by William, but that need for a sort of divine order. That makes me wonder. You know, one of the big ideas running through this section in particular, there's several big conversations about it, is the idea of what makes something a heresy and what makes something merely an idea that's gone wrong, right? Where's that dividing line between we used to, when I was teaching high school, we and we gave student evaluations on the computer, we had a, a button that I would hit all the time, which was for student evaluations, and it was good intentions, mixed results, right? I was like jamming that button all the time on student evaluations, right? And so some of these, like the orders that they're talking about, the, the, especially the, the orders that embrace poverty, it seems like they start out with these really good intentions and then, oh, oh wow, sorry, we ended up like killing a bunch of people because we were trying to force poverty on them too, right? Or these things. And like, what's the dividing line between merely going a little bit astray like it seems like maybe even some of the Franciscans have done, and then ending up as an actual heresy like the Dulcinians do, who are so extreme that they end up excommunicated and many of them burned and things like that. Do you think, there, is there anything that Echoes is trying to show us, either about the medieval mind or then thinking, uh, you know, for him through things in a more modern context, anything he wants to tell us about like the way this, that ideas go wrong, go astray, um, or how they might 
hold together in the end anyway? I love that question, Soren. I think at Nones on day three, when William and Edso are talking about the river of heresy, there's a lot to be said there. William really surprises me in this moment in giving up on what I would have expected him to have a sort of Cartesian equanimity with respect to intellect. People like Chomsky, who say there's a universal grammar and things, would say, who is intelligent around the world? Well, it's pretty much randomized. It's almost perfectly randomized. There's no group or way of parsing one individual from another in order to find out who is going to be smart and who isn't, right? Given that people get, you know, equal opportunities. But our sort of proto-humanist totally disagrees with that idea and says there are the simple and there will kind of always be the simple and those attuned to learning or capable of learning much. And so that division amongst the populace is very important when thinking about the problem of difference itself and also, as they say, shepherding the flock well. To shepherd the flock well, you kind of have to figure out who are who are the simple and who aren't and how to treat them differently and sort of keep them in line, keep them appeased in some way, while also making sure that the learned remain unified in their diversity and whatever is borderline heretical remains only heterodox, right? And so that the the unified church can shepherd the, the flock lest, God forbid, the simple get their hands on scripture themselves and start interpreting the world for themselves, right? So I thought a lot of that was very interesting, a lot of this discussion here. I wondered when I was reading this section, I, I went back to something you were bringing up last time, Carl, thinking about the contemporaneity of this text for Echo in 1980, um, and sort of the political valences of the book, which is not something I had really thought about the first time I read this a long time ago. Mm-hmm. But, you know, given the the prologue and with the, in, in the invasion of Czechoslovakia and all these things that are swirling around it, you can't help but think a little bit about the Cold War and that sort of context. Mm-hmm. And it struck me reading this section, you know, one of William's ideas essentially is like the simple always have these basic material needs. And in the Middle Ages, at least, they're not being met most of the time or a good amount of the time. And so what ends up happening is the simple, the poor, right, end up latching onto whatever seems to promise to them some measure of dignity and some measure of material benefit. Um, and so they're not really, they're not interested in, and I think this is just historically true, in, at least in terms of the Middle Ages, right? Like peasants who are revolting and are teaming up with, you know, possible heretics aren't thinking like, yes, I really like this person's Christology, even though it differs from that of the church's <laughs> traditional teachings, right? Mm-hmm. They're thinking like, okay, this person's helping me like get food and or like mm-hmm. helping me attack my my political enemies, my landlords or whatever, right? There's like this element of the the poor and the simple being swept up in these bigger movements for reasons that are not parsable to people who who are like educated somehow. And and to me that that makes me think about like bringing it into the 20th century the sort of uneasy relationship that has always existed between sort of I don't know what you want to call it exactly, but the academic left or the sort of intellectualized left versus maybe labor movements and mm-hmm. this idea that like 
there's always this optimism about like the working class and then the working class doesn't do what you want it to do. And so you get angry at it and you like prod it with a stick or something. Right. And like, of course, Lenin like famously had the idea of like, well, the people are too stupid to really do anything on their own. So we need these professional revolutionaries to, to lead the charge forward, to, to lead things forward. And, but then like the useful idiots. The, yeah. And, the, but then what happens like when the people that you are ostensibly trying to help and serve, don't want solidarity with you, right? They want solidarity with somebody else who seems more closely aligned with their interests. And then even if you think that's not right. And so there's all these sort of like complicated problems, you know, a sort of dual idealization of the working class and then a great frustration when they don't do what you want them to do. Um, that's kind of running through a lot of, you know, certainly up to, up through 1980, that's a, that's a live problem in a lot of countries. And so it strikes me that, you know, Echo is trying to think somehow about this problem, even though he's being very true to the medieval spirit of it. It's this Mm -hmm. idea, to what extent can you expect people to embrace ideas versus to what extent are people merely going to respond to the stimuli that are around them and, and act in a way that's rational given their own situation and needs. So what are the expectations that you can have for people who aren't educated and are out for, for their own, you know, sort of material benefit. I don't know. I think that's an interesting set of questions that he's sort of, you know, thinking about indirectly here through the, the, these, these ideas of heresy that are running through the book. I'm really compelled by what you're putting down. And I think that Echo coming out of a childhood under Italian fascism probably isn't thinking of that as well, right? The, the amount of people who got swept up into things uh, because they give them like you're saying for material reasons, food and communion and shelter, but also senses of purpose, senses of strength and strength in an identity that they can point out and name in that point that Carl was bringing us to in knowns on the third day, William falters on his metaphor of the river because it's becoming imperfect to him. And Adso is becoming more confused by it. And eventually uh, William just says, well, imagine you're a reformer of morals and you have these, doctrines in some sense i guess and people come to you and they think you're a prophet you're an apostle they follow you have they really come there for what you for what you say and well adso says i don't know and he says well they come because their fathers from their fathers they've heard stories of other reformers and other more or less perfect communities and they believe this is what it is and then adso asks so every movement inherits the offspring of others and he says yeah of course because the simple don't understand the nuances of doctrine that we monks thrive on that we get our work from and to me that was connecting to our earlier season on middlemarch that we talked so many times uh, about the wreckage of history coming up in middlemarch and this is another playing out of that where uh, william puts his finger on the problem people think they're identifying with this they come and they form a community around it but they're thinking something different from what you are and that connects to his you know discussion about brunellus and the idea of the horse versus the actual existing horse and thinking of these platonic problems or whatever. But I also, you, you use the word, sorry, stimuli, that these people are stimulated by things more so than intellectually responding to ideas. And one thing I appreciate about the sections that we read for today is that even uh, an educated person like Adso is shown to be prey to his stimulation, his desire. He says at one point in a very Aldous Huxley way that he's lost to like the abyss of his identity, meaning his sexual desires and identities and his ego. But th- after he, he has his encounter with the woman in the kitchen, 
he's shown number, a number of times to be restless and talking about his restlessness and going out walking, trying to distract himself because he's so physically enthralled by that experience. And I know that's one of the things that comes up in relation to these heretic communities, that they're about doing away with matrimony, lying with whoever you want to lie with. And, and Adso is a great representative of how someone educated attempting to find nuance and doctrine is also uh, partly slave to his desire. I love that you brought us to that moment, Friedrich, because I was thinking about that and the encounter between Adzo and the woman in reference to something we spent a good deal of time talking about last week, which is this idea that in, in scholastic uh, Middle Ages, you know, educated circles, one of the things that's important, incredibly important, is drawing distinctions between things, distinguishing between one thing and another, and properly classifying. And what I noticed as I was reading through this sort of love scene here is that Echo is showing us that Adzo's sense of distinction is breaking down, and it's happening at the level at several different le- levels. One is at the level of scripture. He's taking, um, it's kind of a funny moment, but he keeps quoting from Song of Songs, which of course is a, bo- is a book about sex, right, in a lot of ways. But, but in the monasteries, you know, in the Middle Ages, it's taken pr- largely for its allegorical meanings. But he's, he's then like re-bringing in the sensual aspects to them because he's, he's lost his sense of the allegorical. It's broken down and just dissolved right. into the, the literal sense of what's going on. And partly what fails him there is that it's not just that he falls to temptation, but he like begins to lose his distinction of what's going on. And there's this wonderful description that Echo gives us here of this. This is him him talking about this. He says, as a little drop of water added to a quantity of wine is completely dispersed and takes on the color and taste of wine, as red-hot iron becomes like molten fire losing its original form, as air when it is inundated with the sun's light is transformed into total splendor and clarity, so that it no longer seems illuminated, but, rather, seems to be light itself. So I felt myself die of tender liquefaction. Isn't that a great word? Liquefaction to describe what's going on. It's a breaking down of sort of the solid, rigid boundaries put up by scholastic thought in that moment of sort of sensual response. And so... Part of what happens as Adzo falls here is that it's not just, it is actually, in fact, an intellectual fall as well as a, it's not just the triumph of the sensual over the intellectual. It's actually a corruption of the intellectual itself in that moment and through a sort of a liquefaction of ideas. Okay, I got, I got to try and put some some things back together with all these thoughts that are going on here. To Soren's very Karl Marx pointed question about the working left and the intellectual left, stay tuned for next episode where I feel like a very important, the climax of that thread in the book, I think works out in what happens in our next episode with respect to just the book's comments on how the theology here really is a strong connection to Marxism? What does it mean to hold things in common, especially before we have a sort of modern or industrial capitalist society? What was still the relation amongst people who are ordered in their monastic order and their their commonality of goods, right? was still a fraught debate. And I think there's some real allegory on Echo's part there as to what's going to happen. So stay tuned for that. But with respect to our other sense of 
Adso's liquefaction and where that connects to what William is trying to argue for and keep in line or keep ordered at this moment, as opposed to Adso's enthusiasm or stimulation or dispersal of his, you know, emotions overwhelming his reason in some way. William's really interested in some kind of universal being able to hold those things. And his his sense of allegory is one where that universal placeholder, to kind of think of these things semiotically, remains very obvious, or as much doubt as can enter into his symbology or his sense of what means what in this allegory, you know, what's text and what's metatext for him. The meta-language is complete in some way, right? Though for a postmodernist, the meta-language is broken. The meta-narrative, we must be incredulous towards it. That's the tragedy of William of Baskerville in some way, right? He's do or die, beholden to a perfect, a complete meta-language. All of these things, well, they still will combine in a way that will remain ordered. He doesn't lose any faith in that, though that is for him a sort of Baconized, William of Occamized Christianity, yeah. right? There cannot be doubting that. And therefore, you know, all kinds of other things that people think are heretical, he thinks falls under that definition of totality. But what happens when we have other people with their competing definitions, right? Are they willing to say, no, it's not worth it to differ with respect to the totality because then we are breaking it? Or are they going to say, no, my definition is right and yours must be wrong? There's a real paradox there at that level. But Adso is kind of not there, you know? He's having his enthusiastic experiences of, of love and maybe crossing some lines he shouldn't be crossing, according to William. Carl, you and Soren are saying things that are liquefying and melting into my mind and making a lot of sense together, freezing back in the in the mold in the freezer into a perfect popsicle. And I was thinking while each of you were talking about how William's not he's not in the postmodern realm. He does have faith that there is a universal somewhere, that there is things are being referred to a thing is being referred to, capital T, how about that? But also in thinking about the liquefaction moment, that description, I thought of the library and the shape of the edificium itself, which is, there's a big deal about how, how they solve part of the puzzle of the edificium in this section. And I think bringing that up will probably take all three of us into different directions of thought. But one thing I was thinking of while, while we were discussing this is that the national, quote-unquote, uh, categories that to find the map of the library, Hibernia, Hispania, Achaia is a name for Greece, etc., involve walking through rooms marked by individual letters and that by doing so, those nations share rooms and authors from those places are in each and that the parts of them constitute parts of others as well as themselves. That also there are moments when um, William remarks that the logic of this librarian must be that some of these people totally misclassified by their ethnicity or nation are placed where they should have been born based on their thinking and that the librarian is re appropriately replacing them where they're supposed to be. Why I think of that is that there's this, um, you said liquefaction, I was thinking of like sort of blending of these categories of thought in new ways. And in, I, you know, it would still be an older way of thinking in new taxonomies um, but they're all kept under the order of some system that is still yet to be fully explained, as Carl was saying. And so I don't 
I, I don't have an answer for the library's order at this point, um, but I feel like the discussions of heresy, discussions of sexuality, they're all sort of rolling into one another in, in a way. I love that, Friedrich, especially since to, to go back to Carl's point, if we think about William of Baskerville, being able somehow to reconcile like even, we'll say heterodoxy, if not heresy, like into the bigger picture of the, the language of God or however we want to describe that, then that also maybe allows us to understand something that happens in the library itself, which is that they are keeping these books that are supposedly like, there's a big debate about why are we keeping these books that are bad, right? Like, why do we have bad books here? Um, books that contain maybe like evil knowledge, right? Maybe even like black magic and things like that. And and the idea is that like, well, we have to preserve them. They have They have to be, a, they make up a part of the library too, and we may not let you access them. We may keep them under strict control, but they make up some part of the library's structure as well, even if we can't entirely quantify or classify what that is. And so there's some books like the, the again, we, to, you know, something we mentioned last week, but the um, the scientific musings of like the Islamic philosophers of the Middle Ages, like those are in a sort of gray area. Like, what do we do with those? But clearly some people are very, interested in using them and utilizing what they contain. And then there's other books that are even more questionable that contain like dark magic and things like that. And those are, those are less accessible, but it's not just there. There is a sort of openness even beyond William, but really just in the library itself. And I think this is true largely of, you know, thinkers in the middle ages, an openness to using ideas that are outside of the strictly delineated lines of maybe like, the moral teachings of the church or something in an open-handed way and saying like, I don't know how to reconcile these problems right now, but I think that there's something good here that can be utilized and be brought to bear on the world. And so I'm going to trust that there is a reconciliation possible. Yeah. I love that way of thinking about some of the books. Right. And then I also love the way of thinking about like, you're saying the, the black magic books or something that there may be books that, we have to be so cautious about that we have to keep them but we have to limit their access in some really important way lest like the world change in some way right and it, i think to me that's really interesting because it it remaps i guess pun intended the problem of censorship instead of you know oh should we ban a book or something it's more along the lines of well don't we still today find certain kinds of knowledge to be so dangerous as to not be the kind of thing we ought to disseminate to everyone. For instance, like how to make a nuclear bomb. Here's the 10 easy steps, right? There ought to be some safeguards in place and it ought to be perhaps someone's job to safeguard that kind of knowledge, right? I find anti, uh, anti-book banning people to be among the most tiresome people in the world. <laughs> Soren Riergaard, everybody. <laughs> You're pro banning books. I'm, I'm pro banning. I am. I'm pro banning some books in some in some contexts. Absolutely, I am. Absolutely, I am. Right? People. Every everybody is. They just won't admit it. Well, this was the, this was the debate I was trying to avoid. But anyway, um, sorry, sorry. Like like middle school librarian who's so like awesomely in favor of like. Let me give you a copy of the Unabomber manifesto and. In the school and see how quickly you turn on me. (laughs) 
works well. I remember in high school there was a big controversy about the anarchist cookbook. <laughs> oh my god, you ever heard of this thing? But the idea that certain <laughs> kinds of knowledge ought, ought to be safeguarded, right? <laughs> that knowledge has a price is a, is a different way of thinking about it, right? Rather than ban or not ban, yeah. but rather to know it comes at kind of a steep cost and to to have all people know it might come at too steep of a cost, right? And at this time when that knowledge is not perhaps the way we would think about it, a Cold War kind of knowledge, but again, mm-hmm. that's that reading is there given the other sort of horizon that the book is thinking about, but also a theological kind of knowledge. I really think that's interesting, the sense that how we invest certain concepts with value could be a kind of weaponry, mm-hmm. right? Putting so much emphasis on one aspects of morality over another will lead to a totally different world or world order to the extent that it cannot be turned into a very fun engaging story that will convince tons of people that's something these monks are thinking about very seriously as wrong or worth really hesitating about so yeah and i i love that this idea that knowledge comes at a cost that even applies you know one of the weirder more abstruse debates that ends up happening near the end as they're getting ready to meet with the pope's legation is that apparently pope john is considering basically trying to institute the idea that the dead are not participating in the beatific vision of heaven until after like Mm -hmm. the last days right and that i mean that's a weird sort of strange abstruse theological point to us probably but but part of what's going on there is that they say john's trying to do this just to sort of show that he can like he has the power he's got the keys of heaven and earth and so if he wants to make it so he can make it so make it so number one right but they're recognizing like the franciscans are terrified about this because they recognize like well that means that saint francis if he enacts this knowledge right or he makes this happen that means that saint francis is no longer going to be up there interceding for us like this is going to change the whole structure and they say like actually it's going to fall apart on itself because there go all of your indulgences like you can no longer like right all this this whole system he's like going to bring it down just to sort of make a point about his own power and so there's a nice safeguard and we kind of learn from adzo he flashes forward a little bit and he's like well they ended up reconciling this and making it so like it didn't completely destroy the whole edifice of things but (laughs) there is that that interesting idea that like there's a tension there of like, well, I can do this if I want to because I'm the Pope. But then like, what's going to be the result of all of that? It's going to be like absolute chaos in some ways. And so some things... John's just getting on Bitcoin before everybody else, man. <laughs> <laughs> He's taking that system down. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's a really fat... You're absolutely right. I love this way of thinking about it. It's not about banning or not banning, but it's what is the cost of knowledge? Um, and even some things that are genuine knowledge are maybe better not known. Or or not put at a certain key point in our system of morals or our system of thinking. Mm-hmm. Maybe to have it be known is fine, but it takes the real scrutiny of a of a really learned monk to know where to place it in our in our worldview so that it doesn't disturb the balance too much in one way. We talked about William as like a anachronistic character, but also an uh, aptly medieval character, depending on how we're interpreting him. And uh, in the discussion of the library that he has, one of the many discussions of the library that he has with Adso, they're talking about these concealed books. Why hide a book that 
why keep the book and hide it? Why, if it's concealed like knowledge, would we not get rid of it? Whatever they're having this discussion. And Adso like is like, I realize that there's a sort of discussion going on among the books when we're not there. That there's this hmm. dis- discourse happening among the books all the time, and it disturbs him about the library. And then Adso remarks to William that the library perhaps is an instrument not for distributing truth, but for delaying its appearance. And I like what each of you are saying in relation to that, that this sort of books wait for their reader and they wait for their moment when in this conceptual history or history of ideas or whatever, that's always in materially inflected for someone to come along to interpret it correctly. And that's going on with the, the Pope, as you're saying, it's waiting in the future for Adzo to, to reassure us that, well, we've interpreted it now. It's, it's okay. I, I love that. There's a really wonderful quote here from William to add. So this is when they're talking about unicorns here. And he says that this is something that, like I try to hammer home to my, when I'm in my fiction class teaching my students how to read fiction. He says, books are not made to be believed, but to be subjected to inquiry. When we consider a book, mm-hmm. we mustn't ask ourselves what it says, but what it means. A mm-hmm. precept that the commentators of the holy books had very clearly in mind. And I love that, the idea that it's not about what a book says, but what about about what a book means. And there are many things involved in that beyond just the words, the literal words on the page. This is a discussion of like the literal versus the allegorical meanings of things. And he says, we can subject those things to inquiry and still believe there's something kind of behind that this is again going back to your point carl that like somehow there's a reconciliation that takes place even if we don't fully understand what it means but that takes place even at the level of reading right when we read we're engaged in this act of interpretation that's about what a book means and not just what it says and we have to then subject it to some sort of inquiry as we're doing it we're not naive readers who are merely reading words on a page and then taking them down, right? We're doing some some work as we go along to do that. And that's it, some part of the process of knowledge being produced or revealed here. I guess that makes me think also about the way, the bigger picture of what happens in this library is not, because when we think about a library, we think about a place where we go and get books or increasingly we go and play games on the computer but for the medievals like the people who are in the library of course there are some exceptions visiting scholars and things like that but the people who are working in the library are literally working on producing the library right they're not there to just like pick a book out and look at it and put it back they're actually participating actively whether you know they're illuminators or they're translators or they're right whatever it is that they're doing they're participating in that active life of the library itself to go back to to Friedrich your point earlier about the library as a living organism almost it's always changing and growing and then maybe like a garden it has to be cultivated in these various ways and you have to get rid of some of the thorns or at least you know clip them and put them away that reminds me of the the moment just towards the end of our reading where Edso gets this impression of William and it kind of changes it's one of many moments where I, I kind of take him to be a certain argument for faith against reason in some way. 
and he says, I had the impression that William was not at all interested in the truth, which is nothing but the adjustment between the thing and the intellect. On the contrary, he amused himself by imagining how many possibilities were possible. That just gives me a kind of Leibnizian <laughs> sense of uh, what's not in the garden at the end, kind of uh, candy that we're coming back to a few times here. But when Soren, you gave the, the plot breakdown, I think that's another way to think about this. Each day, William figures out so many things, but he does not stop the murder, right, <laughs> thus far. And the avid is continually more and more displeased by this fact right i don't care about all of your wonderful findings i brought you here to stop these murders and you continue to not do that there's an allegory there on like the you know what hath science wrought for us right <laughs> certainly in in the cold war but then also kind of the difference between a kind of predictive science and then a kind of explanatory science. You know, if science can look back at all that's happened and tell us exactly why it happened, which is, is for some people still a great, you know, definition of science, it's still not going to explain the things that will come along and surprise us tomorrow. And if it's not that kind of predictive quality, we are left wanting. And that's where a certain kind of faith or a certain kind of adso's response to that might come in so i think that's an interesting thing that keeps playing out in the book i wanted to ask you guys one question so when atso's like overwhelmed with love we get an interesting like critique of love itself and echo kind of reminds us that at this time love is a rebel illness in the soul right a imbalance of humors in some way right and it seems like that would have been the orthodox view in a sense like you are clearly mistaken falling um, in some way in love with this woman who just acknowledged that she will probably die because of the inquisition you know and this is there's nothing you can do why would you consider this this silly rebel illness love feeling for any long period of time what did you make of that that moment there's potential sort of double irony around it are we meant to take that as a serious thought or are we meant to kind of side against william there or be a bit more skeptical of the place love holds in our our worldview after this i just thought that was kind of an interesting moment in the book wanted to see what both you thought i don't have a, a perfect answer for your question carl but i was it makes me think about in that discussion uh about attract being attracted to women adso's asked to look on the form of the Virgin Mary by the abbot and uh, the abbot's telling him like, look at how uh, restrained her bosom is and how perfect her form is. And it's, she's womanly and feminine, but chaste and not something that you would lust after. Right. And then later Adso's in the library and he finds, I think uh, an image of the whore of Babylon or something. And, and he's, finding it attractive as well. And I think there's a comparison in his mind between them. And he says about his own lust, I am damned, or maybe I am mad. And it has that same, it's not there, you know, that the mixing of those sounds mad and damned for him uh, in one moment. And I feel like it's connecting with what we were talking about earlier, that there are these nuances that are like playing across one another and parts that are being reconfigured of, out of the same thing to form new things like chimeras are, are talked about in this book. And that's a moment where that's happening for me playfully in the language. Of course, this is a translation into English, so I don't know, you know, what the echo, Echo's original Italian was doing. But that's where I'm thinking right now. 
Yeah, I, I like that, Friedrich. I think there's there's a nice that that sort of mixing together of um, even at the level of language. I I'm sure I just assume Italian sounds very. There's lots of A's in it anyway. Right? So it probably oh, yeah, sounds yeah. it probably sounds pretty <laughs> similar in the moment. Sorry, Italians. Yeah, I think that's really I think that's a that's a fascinating idea. I also think like one of the things that I think Echo is aware of is that there is a sort of because of the monk's vocation and what they have to take vows of, like one way to accomplish that is to then like denigrate everything else. And in fact there's a moment where Adso is like he, he goes through these different remedies for love, right. right? And there's, like, different ones you can do. One of them is, like, go to an old woman and she'll, like, crap talk about your woman until you realize she's not all that great. And, like, all these, all these different remedies for getting rid of, like, a crush, basically. And in the monastery itself, there is a sort of, and I think historically this is true at various times and places, an overcompensation for the idea of, like, well, monkly celibacy is a good thing. Therefore, it means, like, the body is really awful and it's, like, dirt and especially like women's bodies are really terrible but then you're faced with this puzzle that adds is puzzling through which is like well if women's bodies are so awful then why did our lord submit to be born of a woman and so there's like this sort of paradox that emerges in his mind and and i think you know one thing that echo is ultimately sort of like having adzo think through is the idea that well okay this is wrong for me in this situation to enjoy the love of a woman out you know because i am committed to this monkly vocation and there's the idea and i think this is pretty common you know in in catholic teaching which is like yes the celibacy is sort of the highest life possible but that doesn't mean that the other things are sort of irreparably damaged and there's you know different thoughts on this Mm. in different places but like there is a hierarchy going on that, but that the hierarchy doesn't necessarily imply. Again, it's not like a binary, like you were bringing us to earlier, Carl. It's not on or off. Right? It's not holy or not holy. It's a it's a sort of a hierarchy of um, the way those things work. And so, I think that's one thing that Adzo is sort of struggling with as he's trying to turn what what he clearly recognizes in the moment is is a sinful like lust in that moment but then realizing well actually there are like there are good elements that are lying behind that even if the act itself wasn't good um and so again it's a sort of this idea of of reconciliation yes like it's pretty clear you know in at least in the medieval mindset that like celibacy is the highest possible state for somebody to be in but somebody who's married and is not celibate right can still somehow be reconciled into that perfect picture. It's just unclear maybe in the moment how that happens. Um, so yeah, that's a really fascinating question to think about, Carl. How do we make sense of like sort of the body in this picture? There's a point where I don't remember which of the monks is talking, both Adsel and William is talking about how you don't want to become involved with women because beneath their skin, there's all of this mucus and phlegm and it's disgusting <laughs> stuff. And by kissing a woman you're becoming into contact with all of that and then william is bringing order to things and saying yeah but the lord created uh, all of that to be contained within the beauty of our flesh and our beauty of our skin like the edificium bringing order to this thing of seeming chaos it's just repeated again and again throughout this book i also like i think he says in that moment too he's like well guess what you're this like you're the same way underneath that like you have that same yeah, yeah, yeah. disorder within <laughs> you um, contained by order. So that's good. I love that. I just wanted to end with like saying it's, it, I loved both of your guys' answers and I thought 
it just might have been the case that in this group, and I think there's a reason why we're just getting these like monastic men to give us a bit of like uncanniness with respect to the modern sense of like love is clearly a carnal love. The love that makes the world go round is the falling in love, love, right? With the body being very central in that sense, right? But for these monks, they would be like, what the heck are you talking about, right? This is caritas. This is charity. This is loving kindness that has nothing to do with bodies. It has everything to do with the kind of spiritual intentions of your acts, right? Mm -hmm. And so I just liked that kind of jarring moment of uncanniness that that those two things would be conflated as like wild in this moment in history. But for us, it's they're very much connected. Yeah, I think that's a good that's a good point. Well, I think with that, we're going to wrap up this episode. We'll come back uh, next time. We're going to talk about days five, six, and seven of Name of the Rose. They're a little bit shorter. We're going to wrap up our story. We're also going to talk a little bit about the postscript to the Name of the Rose, which is a, it's a text that Echo wrote a little bit after writing Name of the Rose to as he's reflecting on the process of writing it. So we'll bring up some things from that as well uh, next time before we then get into part two after that of our season about uh, monks with... Herman Hesse's book, Narcissus and Goldman. That will be the next thing we do after that. Uh, But until next time, when we're talking about days five, six, and seven of Name of the Rose, we're going to let Cat Keyboard play us out. Never before in the history of motion pictures has there been a screen presence so commanding, so powerful, so deadly. He's Conan the Librarian. Can you tell me where I can find a book on astronomy? Don't you know the Dewey Decimal System? Conan the Librarian. I'm sorry. These books are a little overdue. (laughs) Conan the Librarian. Tonight, only on U62.